I just say again how much uh, we've enjoyed the opportunity to be with you here at uh, Charlotte Chapel this weekend. Peter and Nisa have made us very at home and we've very much enjoyed getting to know them. And it's been good to have an opportunity to get to know one or two others of you here uh, at the chapel as well. So thank you very much for your welcome. I guess it's true, isn't it, that uh, most of us, at some point in our lives, we, we come across moments when the, the ordinariness, the humdrum of everyday existence gets broken by something. And we realise that this is a moment, this is a time of particular significance. Maybe it's a time when, when suddenly we see things very clearly in our lives because of something that happens to us. Or, or maybe there's a, a significant change that we're facing. There's, there's a new job or, or we move to a new area or there's a new family situation and we know that life is never going to be quite the same again. Maybe there's a time when we have to make tough choices, maybe in the workplace, and we have a hunch that the, the consequences of those choices might change everything for us. Of course, for, for many of us here this morning, beginning a, a new phase of life as a, a student in this city, maybe moving to the city as well, this is exactly such a time, a time of change, a significant moment, a, a time when you realise that the choices you make now are going to shape everything. A significant time. Well, you know, the young Ezekiel had long been anticipating one of those big moments in his life. He was, as we read in verse 3, the son of a priest. Verse 3, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi. He was a priest, not a publican. But... Uh, because Ezekiel was the son of a priest, that meant that he had been waiting all his life for his 30th birthday, when according to the Jewish law, he would have been able to commence his own public ministry as a priest in Israel. If you like, this day was to be for him the beginning of the rest of his life. It was the day he dreamed of, the day he'd longed for, the day when all his dreams were to be fulfilled except that his dreams weren't going to be fulfilled. Because when we meet him, it is the time of his 30th birthday. That's almost certainly what the, uh, the 30th year refers to in verse 1. But Ezekiel is not in Jerusalem, near the temple. He's not about to begin his work as a temple priest. In fact, he's far, far away. He's in Babylon, beside the Kibar River. He's in a pagan land. He's among the exiles. In fact, if you read verse 2, you can date this chapter really very precisely. The scholars tell us, I don't know how they do it, but it was apparently the 31st of July, 593 BC. That's what verse 2 would translate uh, into. And if you know a bit of your Old Testament history, you might have some understanding of the significance of that particular window of time. Um, since at the end of Solomon's reign, this little picture will come up on the screen to help you with this, since the end of Solomon's reign in, in Israel, the kingdom had split in two, and the southern kingdom, Judah, had been in a process of hundreds of years of long-term spiritual decline and rebellion. And now, God is on the move in judgment. In that 598, 597 BC, just 
four or five years before Ezekiel 1, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had invaded Judah and taken a large number of uh, its key people into exile, leaving Zedekiah the king as a, as a weak puppet king back in Jerusalem. Within 12 years of that first attack, Nebuchadnezzar would strike again and raise Jerusalem to the ground, taking huge numbers of survivors into exile and killing tens of thousands more. Well, Ezekiel was among that first group of exiles. And the vision that he describes here takes place in 593 BC, pretty much halfway between those two great attacks on Judah. The scholars uh, tell us that the the Kibar River was probably a a large irrigation project that the Babylonian superpower had undertaken. And it's very likely that these exiles had been pressed into forced slave labour in the construction of this great irrigation project. So now, put yourself in Ezekiel's shoes on on his 30th birthday. That day he'd awaited with such expectation and longing. Put yourself in his shoes. Jerusalem has been attacked and it remains highly precarious. The whole international scene is very unstable. Ezekiel himself is far away in Babylon, in exile. He has no temple in which to minister as a priest and in all likelihood he's there in forced labour in the irrigation project. And it's his 30th birthday. Where was God? What had come of all those promises? Why hadn't God protected them? Why had Ezekiel been denied the opportunity that he'd longed for to serve as a priest within the Jerusalem temple? Well, this 30th birthday was not the day that Ezekiel had hoped it would be. And yet, it was still to be a very significant day because although he was far away from Jerusalem, far away from the fulfilment of his dreams, the fact was that God was at work on this particular day. Just to feel the impact of verse 3. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. There, that's the key word, there the hand of the Lord was on him. In Babylon, by the Kibar River, there the hand of the Lord was on him. God was not far away. He was there. He was speaking. He was acting. Because God is God of all creation. He's God for all times. He's God in Jerusalem. He's God in Babylon. He was God in the glory days of David and Solomon. And he's God now in the declining times in Israel. And the vision that Ezekiel saw on that key day, his 30th birthday, would determine the whole course of his life because God was still at work. Let's uh, just try and think about this vision in in overview for a moment. Uh, I draw great comfort, again, from uh, the words of John Calvin, who speaks with great honesty about this chapter when he says, if someone asks uh, if the vision is clear, I confess I find it very obscure and I don't profess to understand it. Isn't that wonderful? That's what Calvin thought about this chapter and how many of us didn't think that when we were reading through this morning. And certainly, uh, it does seem very obscure, doesn't it, to to our Western mindset. And and when we approach a text like this, we we do well to acknowledge our our limitations in understanding it. 
But biblical scholarship has learnt more about this kind of literature over the last few hundred years and, and about how it works so that we've got a little bit of help to call on. This type of literature is known, you perhaps know, as apocalyptic literature. And actually the ancient world was full of this kind of literature. It's, it's full, as we've seen, of, of highly dramatic symbolism and, and very arresting imagery. It's like a, a, a sequence of, of, of arresting images, one after the other after the other, moving very quickly. The idea with this kind of literature is not that you try and draw the whole scene as if you could, but rather you pick up the significance of each image as they hit you in sequence and try and understand that picture against the backdrop of wider biblical usage uh, of the imagery and against the way that that imagery uh, works in the surrounding culture. So it's picture language, it's dramatic language, and we have to try and understand what the pictures are saying. This uh, vision falls into three parts. First of all, we see the, uh, the four living creatures, each with their four faces. And the only way that you can visualise that particular bit of the vision, if you want to visualise it, is to see them standing in a square formation, looking outwards with their, their wings outstretched towards each other, touching each other in a kind of square. That's the first bit of the vision. Then we see this, frankly, incomprehensible system of, of interlocking wheels with eyes all over them, intersecting wheels, which enable the four living creatures to move in any direction without turning. And then third part of the vision, you have above their outstretched wings this vast expanse, and above the vast expanse you have this awesome throne, and then on that throne there sits a figure who's radiant with divine majesty. That's roughly how the vision fits together. And it all builds towards what Ezekiel finally calls the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. So let's, let's just follow that vision through for a few moments and, and, try and try and almost experience it as Ezekiel experienced it as he uh, stood beside the Kibar River. First of all, he's, uh, he's there by the river and he's watching yet another windstorm coming in from the desert, whipping up the sand. He's seen this kind of thing before. And uh, as he looks at this, uh, this sandstorm coming in, his, his eye is suddenly caught by something different in the middle. There's, there's a vast cloud with, with bright lightning and brilliant light in the heart of it. Verse 4, I looked and I saw the windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. Maybe this isn't quite one of those normal windstorms that he'd seen many times before. And then he looks at the centre of the light, which is in fact the, the light of a, of a white hot fire. Ezekiel is realising this is no ordinary sandstorm. Because in the fire, there are four living creatures. Verse 5, the centre of the fire looked like glowing metal and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In many ways, they uh, resemble a human form, but they have four faces and four wings standing in this rather strange formation. But it's particularly to the faces of these creatures that Ezekiel points our attention. Verse 10, their faces, he say, look like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side each had the face of a lion, and on the left the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Now, those faces are rich with symbolism. First of all, we have the lion, 
course, a symbol of, of courage and of, of nobility and royalty. Then you have the eagle. Now, in biblical imagery, the, the eagle speaks of, of compassion and swiftness to save. You know the, the image of, of the, the, the eagle tipping its young from out of, of the nest in order to teach them to fly. And then when they struggle, swooping down underneath them to rescue them. There's the eagle, swift to save, full of compassion. Then you have the ox. The ox, of course, was the, the sturdy workhorse of the ancient world, of the ancient agriculture. And so it spoke of, of strength and of provision. And then finally you have the human, probably symbolising, believe it or not, wisdom and reason. You may think that's a slightly strange, strange choice. So these awesome creatures together with their four faces, they combine in the creature the regal majesty of a king with the eagle's swiftness to rescue, with uh, the strength and productivity of the uh, the bull and the wisdom of a human being altogether. Now, if you put yourself in Ezekiel's shoes again for a moment, I'm sure that this must have been a rather terrifying vision. But, you know, it wasn't necessarily completely unfamiliar to him. It's one of the intriguing things of this passage. Because actually, if, you, uh, if he had walked around any of the temples of the, the ancient Mesopotamian world, he would have often seen figures that looked rather like this, standing outside those temples. Lifeless figures, often pictured as holding up the sky with outstretched wings, because they thought the sky was the home of the gods. For Ezekiel at first sight, this image, terrifying though it may have seemed, was really part of the the familiar spectacle of imposing paganism within Babylon. This is exactly the kind of thing he'd seen before that made him just feel intimidated and far from home. But in in the ancient uh, Mesopotamian world, these living creatures were always seen as attendants of deity, the attendants of the gods. So as Ezekiel saw these living creatures, he was aware of the presence of deity. But maybe the question was, which deity? because he's far from Jerusalem. At this stage, Ezekiel doesn't tell us. Maybe he's not even certain himself. Finally, in chapter 10, verse 20, Ezekiel will tell us that these living creatures are are none other than the cherubim who attend the throne of the Lord, the God of Israel. But, But at this stage, he doesn't identify them like that. He's just overwhelmed by this, this mysterious and dramatic and, and, and humbling vision. But there was something about these creatures that was different from anything that Ezekiel had seen before. And his eyes home in on that. You see, these vast creatures are moving. The ones he'd seen before are just lifeless figures outside the temple, dead, doing absolutely nothing. But, but these figures, they're moving in the most extraordinary way. End of verse 9. Each one went straight ahead, they didn't turn as they moved. Verse 12, each one went straight ahead. Wherever the Spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. Verse 14, the creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. There was something different about these creatures. They were moving, they were full of life and vitality. Well, how could these huge, extraordinary things be moving in this strange way? Well, that takes us on to the next bit of the vision. They could do that because of the wheels that we read about in verses 15 to 21. These wheels covered in eyes. 
The sparkling wheels are there on the ground beside each of the creatures. Verse 15, I looked at the living creatures and I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. Again, this is completely unique to Ezekiel's vision. There's nothing else like this in in ancient religious art as far as we know. And, And it seems that language itself is being pushed to the limit as he describes what this, uh, this mobility is like. I mean, I, frankly, I can't get my head around the physics of this, these, these intersecting wheels that move in any direction without turning. I, I, frankly, I don't really know how to visualise it, hardly what it means. But the point is, these creatures possess perfect mobility and the wheels are covered in eyes to suggest that they possess perfect knowledge. They can get anywhere they want just with a flash of lightning. And when they're there, they can see everything that's happening. Perfect mobility, perfect knowledge. And then the third section of the vision, verses 22 to 28, above the throne and above the expanse. Ezekiel looks up and he sees above their wings this incredible expanse which is sparkling like crystal. And his breath is utterly taken away by the vision. Verse 22, spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like ice and awesome. Awesome. But this expanse is so clear that you can actually see through it. And Ezekiel hears a voice from the other side of the expanse which makes him look through to see what's there beyond. Verse 25, there came a voice from above the expanse, over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. He looks above to see what's there. And what he sees is so awesome, it's so overwhelming that he falls face down, utterly overwhelmed. You know, chapter 3, verse 15 tells us that Ezekiel was so overwhelmed by this extraordinary vision that he saw there above the expanse that he was literally speechless, literally speechless for seven whole days. For a whole week, all he can do is just sit there among the exiles because he's so utterly overwhelmed by the glory of God that he's seen. Above the expanse is this brilliant, rich blue stone throne. And above the throne sits this awesome human-like figure. Have you noticed how many abuds there are here? You've got above the creatures an expanse, above the expanse a throne, and then high above on the throne this awesome figure. What a dramatic image of transcendence, isn't it? God who is above, 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 above. He's high, he's holy, holy, holy. Awesome vision of God. And the figure glows with fire in the centre and all the colours of the rainbow on the edge. The whole scene radiates brilliant light. And it's only now, after all this dramatic description, that Ezekiel turns to us and tells us what it is that he's seen. Maybe it's only now that Ezekiel is sure what he's seen. The living creatures were not heralding the presence of of Babylonian pagan deity. No, what he has seen, he tells us, is nothing other than the appearance of the likeness of the glory of of the Lord. That's as close as language can get to what he's seen. The appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And before such a vision, he falls face down, utterly overwhelmed. He makes no claim to have seen God, 
nor even to have seen the glory of God, only the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. But I suspect he thought that was enough for him. Well, what's the significance of this vision? What was it for Ezekiel? What is it for us today? What does it mean? Let me just uh, try and unpack that for a moment. First, the living creatures, what do they tell us? Well, first they tell us that the Lord is all-sufficient. Do you remember those four faces? The, the lion, the eagle, the ox and the human. They're actually telling us something about God himself because this is a vision of the throne of God. And they're telling us that God himself is utterly all-sufficient. Yes, Ezekiel may be far from home. Yes, he may be surrounded by imposing paganism that makes him feel very intimidating. But still, the Lord is all-sufficient. He has everything that Ezekiel needs. The majesty of the lion, the help of the eagle, the strength of the ox, the wisdom of the human. Indeed, he far excels each of those. The Lord is all-sufficient. I wonder whether we need to know and hear that lesson this morning. Maybe, maybe we find ourselves daunted by the challenge of a new stage in life. Maybe we're slightly intimidated by the sheer impressiveness of new people that we're meeting in a new city. Their sparkle, their intelligence, and you just feel so ordinary. Maybe you feel dwarfed by the sense of being a small cog in a big wheel at work. Or, or just struggling with the ongoing challenges of life, family life. Wherever you are, I want to suggest you need to know the same this morning. The Lord is all-sufficient and you can trust him. When I began my current role in UCCF, I certainly felt pretty intimidated by the responsibilities that God had given me. One of my dear friends said to me early on, he said, John, however, you, however aware you are of your weakness, and it's right to be aware of your weakness, you need to be more aware of God's all-sufficiency. I've had to return to that many times. Of course, it doesn't mean that there are easy answers. It doesn't mean that there's no trouble, but it does mean that we can trust God in everything because he is sufficient to meet every situation that we're in and to give us grace for it. But we also learn from the living creatures that the Lord is judge. The living creatures, we're told in verse 13, they look like burning coals or torches and fire moves among them. And in scripture, images of fire are usually associated with, with judgments. If you read on, you'll find, of course, that Ezekiel is bringing a message of judgment. Jerusalem will fall, he says. Of course, there's a message of hope too. There's restoration beyond it, but... First, there's a message of judgment because the Lord is the judge. And of course, that message then was just as unpopular as it is today. But Ezekiel couldn't avoid it, for the Lord is the judge, and we're accountable to him. After all, that's why he was in Babylon in the first place. It was an act of judgment on God's people. See, God is not just the kind of God who's there for our convenience. He's the kind of God before whom you fall prostrate, utterly overwhelmed. If you just catch the slightest glimpse of the appearance of the likeness of his glory, that's the kind of God he is. He is the judge. What about the wheels, these rather bizarre things? Do they speak to us? Did they speak to Ezekiel? Well, I think they did. I think what they said to Ezekiel was that though he may be far from Jerusalem far from the temple, 
the Lord was with him there. The Lord is not stuck in Jerusalem. He's right there in Babylon. His throne, you see, is perfectly mobile and his knowledge is completely complete. I didn't mean to say completely complete. You know what I mean. He's not just a, a tribal deity who might come unstuck if he, if he involves himself on the other side's home turf. No, his throne has perfect mobility and perfect knowledge. All the earth is his, as we sang earlier on this morning. He never plays away from home. He didn't stay back in the temple in Jerusalem. He's there in Babylon because his throne is a mobile throne and his, his knowledge is perfect. You will never catch him off guard for all the earth is his and he knows it completely. If you've just arrived in this great city of Edinburgh, let me say you need to know you didn't leave God back home in your church youth group, with your friends, with that person who was such a significant influence in your life. No, God is here in Edinburgh. He's here and he's working here where you are. God is everywhere. He is sovereign everywhere. His throne is perfectly mobile. He's still the king. He's sovereign in Britain. He is sovereign in Iraq, as we were praying a few moments ago. He's sovereign in China. He's sovereign in Parliament. He's sovereign in the Scottish Assembly. He's sovereign in the business world. He's sovereign in the classroom. He's sovereign everywhere. He's king of the arts. He's king of the sciences. Do you know, God knows more about neuroscience than your new professor could even dream of. And he knows more, knows more about, about the arts and beauty than Foucault or anybody could suggest. He knows it all. Even in your academic studies, if you're a student here, you're never going to catch God off guard. You know, all searching for truth, all true discovery of truth is ultimately, to quote, I think it was Abraham Kuyper, simply thinking God's thoughts after him. He already knows it. That's why he delights when human beings discover that which is true, because it's his truth. He's sovereign over it all. He has perfect knowledge. His sovereignty extends to every sphere of life. This throne of God is a perfectly mobile throne. Wherever we go, we cannot escape our accountability to him. He's the all-powerful, the all-seeing God. And wherever we go, we can trust him utterly to come with us. He's sovereign there, where you are. And then above the throne, the expanse, finally. You remember all those above, above the living creature, above the expanse, high above the throne? The Lord himself is high, he's holy, he's utterly transcendent. That imposing splendour of Babylon, it could have been quite intimidating to Ezekiel, just as, as Western culture with its institutions can be today. But you know, if you can but catch a glimpse of the glory of God, the Lord isn't just intimidating, he's utterly overwhelming. Because he's high, high, high above. The holy, holy, holy God. We don't need to feel intimidated because God is transcendent over everything. Well, this morning, what's our response to this vision? What was the response that Ezekiel was called to? Well, the first thing that Ezekiel was called to do was to fall at the feet of God in worship and praise. 
We've already noticed, haven't we, at the end of the chapter, when I saw it, I fell face down. I don't suppose he had much choice, actually, did he? He just fell to the ground, overwhelmed by what he had seen. Of course, this is the posture, isn't it, of worship. I want to suggest to you this morning that one way that we can respond to this vision of Ezekiel is to ask, is our vision of God simply too small? Have we lost what the Bible often calls the fear of the Lord? See, Ezekiel doesn't have, does he, a sort of cotton wool experience of overwhelming love. Yes, God does sometimes give those experiences and that's very wonderful. But, you know, this is an experience of of terror and of total overwhelming that leaves him speechless and on the floor before this awesome God. I want to ask, could we even imagine being that overwhelmed by the sheer glory and majesty of our God? Or have we made him so small that we're just comfortable with him? C.S. Lewis famously spoke, didn't he, of Aslan as being not a tame lion. But I wonder, do we have a tamed, domesticated view of God? A comfortable, pocket-sized God who's there for us, who's accommodating to our sensibilities, who's always nice to the end, but never terrifying, never overwhelming, never so awesome that we bite the dust at his feet. Do you know one of the, uh, the commonest Old Testament words for worship actually comes from the idea, literally, of just falling down before the Lord. It means bend over or fall prostrate before him. Worship is about responding to the overwhelming glory and majesty of God in submission, in reverence, and yes, in joy. Let us this morning catch a glimpse of Ezekiel's God and bow low in worship before him. But he's called to a second response as well. And it's the response of fearless obedience. You see, Ezekiel wasn't given this vision simply to overwhelm him. He was given this vision to commission him. Verse uh, 28, again, of chapter 1. When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. The voice is speaking. Presumably the same voice that had first drawn his attention to what was above the expanse. And that voice caused Ezekiel to move from the the, the posture of worship, prostration, to the posture of service. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. Get ready. I have something for you to do, Ezekiel. You're called to obey. And then the voice gives Ezekiel his tough commission. Verse 3 of chapter 2. Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I'm sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, listen to what I say. Do not rebel like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. That was his commission. A commission to fearless obedience. 
repeated three times there that he must not be afraid. How was that even remotely possible for Ezekiel not to be afraid there in Babylon, away from everything? How could he not be afraid? Well, only because he had learned a greater fear. He had learned the fear of God. He had seen a glimpse of the overwhelming glory of God before which now every other display of human glory was as nothing because he had seen the throne of the Lord. Don't be afraid. Instead, speak God's word to them, verse 7, whether they hear or not. Then verse 8, listen to what God says. And rather than rebelling, receive God's word into your life, Ezekiel. And although our situation isn't exactly the same as Ezekiel's, <clears throat> surely the key lessons are actually the same for us, aren't they? Surely our response to this vision of God's glory should be the same as the one that Ezekiel was called to. That we should learn to fear God more than we fear people. That we should be ready to speak God's word to them, not watering it down, not trying to make it palatable, but keep, keep, keep explaining the good news of Jesus Christ to them. Even if people don't want to hear, how tempting it is, isn't it? when we find that people don't want to hear our message, to water it down, to always talk about something else, never actually to come to the heart of the matter as to what Jesus has done. But surely the call to us is to keep speaking the word of God in our society with its paganism. Speak God's word. And for ourselves, keep listening. Keep listening. Work hard to understand and apply God's word. We had the, uh, the talk to the children earlier that was a talk to all of us, wasn't it? to have our ears open to the Word of God, for it is the Word of God. It is God speaking. Keep listening. And don't rebel, but receive God's Word into our own lives. You know, Ezekiel would never forget his 30th birthday, would he? That day when he received this awesome vision of the glory of God, and when he was called to respond in worship and in fearless obedience. My prayer is this morning that we would catch a glimpse of this God and join Ezekiel falling on his feet, falling on his knees before him and then move out from here in fearless obedience. As we close, we're going